My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Scott Sullivan, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. It's great to have you, Scott. Uh, Scott Sullivan is a licensed architect and principal of Relativity Architects based in Los Angeles, California. As co-founding principal of RA, Scott has collaborated on a wide range of design projects, including urban master planning, production studios, and hospitality projects. He also directs the affordable housing arm of the studio, providing thousands of units per year uh, to our most vulnerable populations. And providing affordable housing at times is challenging, jumping through all the the hoops necessary to realize these projects, maybe working with nonprofits and for-profits together, uh, meeting highly restrictive criteria. So I'd love to talk about that with you, Scott, today, sort of talk about how architects who'd like to move in that direction could do that. What are some of the ways we can start doing that? Maybe we can talk some about some of those challenges and and what it it takes to get those projects realized. Uh, But before we do that, I want to learn more about you as an architect. So where did you discover architecture? Who or what inspired you to become an architect and share your origin story? Yeah, so it's a little bit complicated, but it's hopefully semi-interesting. I, I grew up on an avocado ranch, an organic farm down in San Diego. And that started my the process of me sort of um, um, looking at nature and understanding a little bit about its order and its processes and, and its structures from watching, you know, ant armies fight each other to seeing how trees, you know, can grow around a rock if it's in its way. And, and from there, I kind of delved pretty heavily into mathematics and science. And that was kind of my direction for a lot of my, my early life. I, I ended up going to Hogginman College um, in California in Claremont. Um, where I studied, uh, I began studying mathematics and I moved into engineering and the, the action was actually an active one, one that was pushing me from mathematics into architecture. I had sort of a common, sort of a, a, a dualistic view of the world of both the artistic side and the scientific side and the mathematical side and architecture became sort of the, the crucible where I married the two together. And, and that's, it kind of took all the things that I loved about the world and about you know, intellectuality and, and about learning and, and about doing and, um, and put them all together in one little stage for me to, to act on. So that's kind of how I got into architecture. I, I, from the beginning, I, I came from the, the natural side of it. And, and then I kind of moved into the more, you know, sort of um, the, the firm side of it, of actually doing work and building um, from, as a kid, I learned how to do a lot of things um, because I was on a farm. So I learned how to fix a car. I learned how to build a shed. I learned how to build a fence. I learned how to how to, an irrigation system worked. I learned the systematic approach to to um, sort of integrating with the world. And and then later on in Harvey Mudd, I learned um, sort of more of the mathematical background of dynamic systems and how to model those in a mathematical way. Um, and that, and that led me sort of to an idea of architecture that I, that I used during my studies and I still use to this day. So that's kind of the origin story. Do you, do you remember the moment where you realized that that 
combination of sort of the nature and the artistic creative side of you um, and the scientific mathematical side came together at architecture? What, what was the, the thing where you realized that the architecture was where that was going to land? I think, strangely enough, I think it was looking at an early Frank Gehry project, which is kind of strange. I <laughs> see he's here in Los Angeles. And I mean, I, I think it was sort of the gestural kind of organic flow of, of the, of the form of the architecture um, that, and, and it, it just kind of hit me that this is sort of a collision, you know, yeah. in the sense of Frank Gehry of that, of, of science and art. And, um, and so from there, that was just a seed and that was pretty early. And, and then it grew you know, it grew with the help of some friends who were interested in that. And, uh, and they started to turn me on to different architects, you know, at the same time as I was pushing really heavily with engineering and, and, and math. And uh, they sort of did, the seed grew and grew. And then somewhere in the middle of um, my time at Harvey Mudd, I started to make the, the sort of um, decision to make, to make the change. And that's how I kind of went from math and physics to engineering and then onto a master's degree in, in architecture. Where'd you go for the master's? I went to SciArc. So I stayed in Southern California. I stayed small school. Um, that SciArc had a lot of positive things for me. I, I had a lot of weird events in my life that kind of pushed me toward it. I had a, I had a, um, a family friend who uh, worked at Skidmore Owens and Merrill and they, they turned me on to it. I, I was in, I was in a hostel in Turkey talking to some Belgian architects and, uh, and they're like, you have to go to SciArc. And I'm like, well, how do you even know about that place? You know, <laughs> um, I went, I went to SciArc to, to visit it while I was, well, one of the things is I went to a UCLA uh, presentation about masters in architecture. And I asked them, you know, what, how does the program rate in, in California? Like, is it a good program? I knew nothing about it. I'm like, well, you know, we're pretty good in the city. Uh, you know, we're, I think we believe we're a little better than USC. Oh, and, and SciArc. SciArc's the crazy school, you know, and, and I was like, oh, okay. So then, there we go, you know. <laughs> and so that was in the 90s and that, that was a lot of fun. And, and so then I went to, I went to uh, visit the school and, and I happened to be lucky enough to go during a thesis presentations and I was, my, I was blown away. And I just remember someone telling me who was walking me around SciArc, they just said, you know, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what you do here. Like it doesn't matter if you do architecture or not. It just matters that you do it well. You know, I, I thought that was a pretty interesting statement. And that, that sort of pulled me in and I, you know, I stayed. That was, that was my end of my side story. I mean, I spent yeah. three and a half years there and there were wonderful times and, you know, I learned a lot about architecture there. SciArc sounds like the perfect place for somebody like you, that sort of has that uh, desire to become an architect, to under, you know, to to take sort of the the scientific mathematical side of you and and um, have it collide with your creative side. It sounds like it would be, would be a perfect place for a young architect to go. Yeah, I mean, at that time it was it was a little bit different than it is now, and 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 the good part is I had the technical side sort of figured out. Um, compared to the work I was doing, the structural was was fairly simple. You know compared to like dynamic system modeling and things like that. So I got to really explore the artistic side. What was really interesting was that I went, so Harvey Mudd's a pretty challenging school for, for science and math. And I went to a place where it was really hard to find the right answer that was Harvey Mudd to the place in SciArc where there was no right answer. <laughs> you know, so it was a, it was an interesting transition and kind of a mind yeah. bender. So, you know, that was kind of fun. Very um, interesting. 
So, so uh, what did you do after school? So at the end of school, I, I met a gentleman there named Kima Bell, and, and we became fast friends pretty much the first day that we were in graduate school. And in the middle of school, we started to do projects. There were little ones, like little furniture things here and there, and, and, and then a little remodel here and there. At the end of school, near my thesis time, we got a project to do a nightclub on the Santa Monica Pier, which was kind of a high profile gig. And we kind of put school on pause for a little bit and we worked on that during sort of the thesis time we would be doing. We ended up presenting all of our work from during SciArc, which ended up being like a straw bale house that we built our first year out on my ranch in San Diego to, you know, um, a, 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 a factory that we, we made in San Bernardino and we made, um, and then a whole bunch of other stuff and the, and the, and the nightclub and all the furniture, we presented that as our thesis. So that ended up being our, our master's degree, um, thesis. So, um, after that, we started a company and we just kept going with what we were doing, you know? So, so, so you sort of started all that work in school, used it as your thesis, continued after school and it became, yeah. it became a, a firm. Yeah, so we, then we became a firm. We started. We, we added projects. We added people. I mean, at that time, we didn't know what the heck we were doing. I mean, it was it was trial by fire. I mean, as you guys know, architecture is super complicated, and and being able to being able to pull all the different things together, it wasn't it wasn't easy. And we we just learned. We made mistakes and we powered through them. And, and you know, we we built a little firm of five people, you know, six people. Um, things happened and we ended up, you know, letting go of all that and, and moving on. And, and that was, that was okay. And I ended up um, working for a bunch of other architects. Um, I worked for Robert Crockett architects in Los Angeles and Chris Mercier. And then I went to work for a, um, a, uh, a firm that did high end residential. And that was a lot of fun. It was design build. And I worked for a little time with more Radziner. And, and then my friend that I, that I had worked with before, my partner from before, called me and said, hey, you know, I have this studio project that I'm working on. And, I, and I'm licensed at that time. And he's like, I need to have a license on it. I'd, I'd like you to come and join me. And we started up again. And that was about seven, seven and a half years ago. So, and that's what you're doing today, the same firm, relatively. Yeah, relatively. yeah. I mean, we, we kind of had a rapid growth. It was, it was pretty, it's pretty heady. It's pretty interesting. I mean, the, there's a lot of, there's a lot more to the architecture business than just architecture. And that, that was something that we learned along the way. And those are the challenges we had to overcome. You know, we had to go from a tiny firm to a small firm, a small firm to a mid-sized firm. And I think we're probably mid-sized now. I mean, we're, we're kind of growing fast. So how many do you have now? Well, we have about 50. Okay. So, so the size of the firm is, is grown and, um, it's it's good. They're they're kind of spread around the world now that we have remote working and it kind of works for us. We're a super diverse firm. We we have 18 different first languages. We have, you know, we, we hail from about 15 different countries. And we like that. We bring people together because they have different views of things. They have different ways to look at it. They have different sort of design techniques that they're that their region sort of employed. And they bring those in and we kind of put them together and mix them and you know, we come out with something pretty interesting. So was that an intentional decision to be a remote firm and be so diverse, or was that just sort of where where it grew? Well, I, don't, I mean, I don't think we're a remote firm so much. I mean, some of our members are remote. I, I, it was never it was never by design. I mean, we, we believe in sort of the in-house collaboration, even now, even though we were like a hybrid model. We have, you know, at this time, we have about maybe 25 people in the office all the time, and then other people spread about. So, I mean, because people have 
they come from somewhere else. When they go back to visit or to do things, they stay for a while and then they work remote from there for, you know, you can't go back to Dubai for a week, you know, that doesn't make any right, sense. Right. So you can't go back to Brazil for five days, you know, for a long weekend. So when you, when you do that, you go back and then, and then they stay there for a, lot, a little while. We, we allow them the, the flexibility to, to work from there as long as the time works all right. But um, so that, that works. I mean, it makes everybody happy. And I think it makes us happy too. And what kind, what type of work did you do when you first started? You said it was a studio project. What what kind of work was most of the work when you first started? Well, so we started we we started on a studio. So we worked on on a studio, a mid sized studio campus in Los Angeles, and that and and then that was sort of the beginning. We were on the third floor of their, their executive floor of their tower, and we basically built that out as we went along, and and, and so that was a lot of fun, and we learned a lot doing that. I mean, we built the largest uh, freestanding concrete. Uh, uh, building in in the United States as a big studio, like one big. So you're talking talk, when you're saying studio, you're talking t- television production, movie production, that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. That, so th- those are the two. We have two. We have a lot. I mean, kind of the idea that you know, being diverse, we're also diverse in our project type. So our typologies are all over the map. But to to really hone in on what we do is probably the studio building and affordable housing are our two major components. Then we have a pretty large hospitality wing that kind of comes and goes. They, they have different requirements and, and different financial um, sort of investments to them. So they all kind of, you know, they all kind of move around. They go up and down with the cycles. So um, yeah. I mean, one of the good things about affordable housing and about studio work is it's actually counter cyclical. And that's, that's one of the things we, I don't know if we did that so much by design. I mean, we were cognizant of that issue, of that sort of benefit when it was happening, you know, that we were, you know, we started to go into these things and we started to get some traction with them. And, and so that, that we knew that the fact that when the economy was bad, there's more affordable housing, right? And when the economy's bad, people turn to entertainment, you know, to relieve some, some of their suffering. So in those times, the spending on those two items actually goes up. So. Um, so it, it is it is nice because you know as architects we are we are uh, you know yarn in the wind for the for the economy. Let's take a break to thank our sponsors for their support of this episode. As architecture demand increases toward pre-pandemic levels and beyond, how are you and your architecture firm keeping up? RCAT is here to help. RCAT.com offers several free tools to help architecture and design firms like yours get work done faster. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find the right products for your projects and download BIM, CAD, and specifications right there on the same page without needing to pay or register. It's free. RCAT.com also offers product videos, catalogs, green reports, product certification information, outline and short form specification generation, and so much more. Visit rcat.com today. rcat.com is your one-stop solution to help increase your productivity and get more projects done faster. That's rcat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team by project and get organized with financial reports, communication, and notifications. My favorite feature in FreshBooks is the automated invoice reminders. 
I think sending invoices and getting paid is one of the biggest barriers to our success as entrepreneur architects. Who has the time? But if we don't send out the invoices, we don't get paid, right? FreshBooks makes it easy to send out your invoices and get paid fast online with a click of a button. And when your client doesn't pay you on time, FreshBooks will send them a friendly email reminder through a simple system that you control. Sign up for a free 30-day unrestricted trial and get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid faster. Go to entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So it's, it's interesting to hear that you do studio work, so television and, and movie production studios, um, which is, you know, one end of the world and then the affordable housing on the other end of the world. Uh, how did you get from movie studio, television, movie studios to affordable housing? What, what, you know, brought you to, to do affordable housing? I mean, it, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're just starting out and you are just got a couple people and you're looking for things and opportunities are come up and you take them. Right. You know, I mean, so there's, there's a lot of great things about doing affordable housing and, it, and, it, and it's a, it's a noble endeavor. And, and the fact that we, we sort of gotten lucky and, and we were introduced, not really introduced. We were, we had a contact at an affordable housing company in Los Angeles and, and that it was a fairly decent sized company and it allowed us to, you know, to sort of begin Right. And they gave us a project and we jumped in and, you know, we way underbid it and they loved that. And <laughs> we worked our butt off and they loved that. And we made a bunch of mistakes and we, and we learned a lot and, and we, you know, we succeeded with that. And then with that came the next one. And then with that came another one. And then, and then the people from that company would go to other companies. And because we solved problems in a manner where we kept them. I mean, solving problems is really what, is one of the biggest part of what architects do. And so there, I, I believe there's a method to that. I think we could get into that, but, um, but because you keep everyone in the loop and you're honest and, and you're real about how you do architecture and how you problem solve and how you, how you try to save everybody from, from issues, then, then people come back to you and they, they know that, that, that you're, you're a decent, you know, you're an advocate for them. And so when people would move to other firms to, that or other developers and they would go, Hey, I got these people, let's bring them in. And they did. And we got projects from them. And, and then suddenly we were moving around, you know, 20, 30, 40 of these at a time, you know? And, and so the firm sort of grew to allow that to happen. And, you know, and we started to make processes and protocols within the firm that allowed us to kind of get some of these things done quicker because, you know, there's, they're not, they're not necessarily repetitive. I mean, it, we, we, we focus more on rehabs than the new construction. We always had new construction going on, but it, they were a lot harder to get. I mean, they're, they're a lot larger. There's, they're a lot larger um, financial um, investment by the developers. So they take a lot longer to do. And so the rehabilitations are, they don't take quite as long and, and they're just as needy. I mean, they're just as, as needed in this, in this world right now. I mean, there's a whole bunch of just, terrible buildings out there where people are living in squalor and and so these developers will buy those up and they'll they'll transform them into something wonderful and that, and then we're we're proud to be in that to be in that process and to, and to lead it 
So what kind of projects are you saying you're doing rehabilitation projects? So are they existing affordable yeah. housing units that you're renovating and redesigning and making them work better? Yeah, so it depends. And it's it's a very kind of, there's a spectrum there. That it's either it's either new buildings that are being converted to affordable or not new buildings, build, existing buildings that are being converted or they're existing affordable that haven't been touched for a long time. And, and so what, what you do, there's a, there's a process and there's, it's, it's fairly complicated. I'd love to go into it, but it, it basically there's funding sources that are involved. There's affordable, there's for-profit and non-profit developers that are involved. Um, and then, and then there, there is requirements that are given to you by certain funding sources and, and the, the tax credits are the main one. And, and the tax credits drive accessibility, they drive energy conservation. Um, they give you extra points for amenities that you provide. And so, and so what we do is we start to just break this thing down. And we say, okay, so what, you know, we do, we do reviews of the sites. Okay, what, what's wrong with this? Like, why are, you know, what, 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 how, what can we make better here? What needs to be fixed? And what needs to be, to be upgraded? And then how do we do that? And then there's a, there's a bunch of stuff to do. And, and then you start to go out and you, we, add, we add space to the community areas. We add computer rooms. We add gyms. You know, we, we do little things within the units that allow people, you know, we, we spend a little bit of time. And this is really a, a continuous evolving thing. And, and it is about placemaking. And so what we try to do is we make things in people's units that allow them to kind of settle in a little bit. And, it, and it's, it's, they're little tiny things, you know, they're, they're giving cubbies for people to put their, their, you know, their, their own personal things in pictures and their, you know, knickknacks and things like that. It's putting a, it's putting a desk near the kitchen so that when um, the kid is doing their homework and the mom's in the kitchen per se, or the dad's in the kitchen, that they're, they're right next to each other, you know, it's putting a playground next to a community room where people can gather in the community room and they can watch their kids play out or play out on the playground. Like people don't think through all that stuff and how simple these moves are, but what huge impacts they make on people. I mean, you put the laundry room, the community room, the fitness room by the playground, the kid gets to play for hours while you're kind of running through your daily things and then you, you, you keep them safe and you're comfortable to do that and suddenly your life's better, you know? And, and the other side, when you make things in the units to, for people, just to kind of make it their own and to, to be able to use it in a meaningful manner to, to make their family grow, they they can then sort of put down roots. And that's the most important thing here. Like it's not it's not the same just to have housing, right? It's that that does something, but it doesn't do everything. In fact, it doesn't do enough. So what you want to do is you want to make homes for people, right? Even if this is even this is a two bedroom in a 160 unit complex. You know, what you want to do is you want people to invest themselves into that unit. So into that thing as, as the place that they live where they can grow and they can build their family on. And you do little things that you can do. You know, you make, you make little investments in things, spend a little bit more money, and you make it a place where they can really occupy and, and plant their roots. And we spend a lot of time on that. And, and I think it really, you know, it really comes out well. So... So you say that there's there's uh, specific regulations that you need to meet in order for tax credits, which is a big part of the funding of an affordable housing project. Um, but you also add a lot of your own creativity, your own uh, architectural design to it, which is you know that's the power of architects, right? That's yes, that's, yes. You know, taking taking what we have, that's our superpower to be able to take the mundane and turn it into something wonderful and beautiful for everyday people. Um, do you ever run into uh, challenges with wanting 
to be able to spend the time on that design part of it from from either the regulators or the the developers that, that may not want to spend the money or the time on that that part of the project? So there are certain developers that don't want to do that, that don't want to spend any money at all on anything except for just getting tax credits and, and, and doing the, and doing the, the business of it all. And so we don't, we don't continue with those. So we, you know, we have enough that we, that, that work. I mean, I guess part of the deal here is, is developers are like, they're, they're, they're people that, you, that we as architects need to sink our hook into, right? We need, we need them to rely on us, right? But we also need to pick which ones we, we use or we, that we work for, let's say. Right. Yep. And, and because there's some that care and there's some that don't. And if they don't care, there's not enough time in this life to, to, to go down that road. I mean, there's just not enough time. So we choose those that allow us to do that or even, even in some cases challenge us to do that because there isn't a lot of resources. So that's, that's the thing with the, with the rehabs. You know, the, in the new construction, there's more resources. In the rehabs, it's kind of in and out. And, and you're spending a lot of time on making the cabinets okay and redoing the carpets. And there's a lot of money spent on the fact that there's a lot of numbers, right? So if, you know, if, if you're putting in faucets, you're going to put in 280 of them, right? So that's it. The, the money goes fast. And so we choose the ones that really have a vision for, for their, their, their projects, or they, they have the ability to allow us to have a vision. Both of those work really well. Um, and, and so that, you know, there, there's a lot of times when we, when we go, oh, we're not doing anything to this project. We're not helping this project at all except painting it. And then, and then we move on as a firm. You know, again, it's, it's not worth it to go down the road where, where there's nothing added to this world, where we're not trying at least, at least struggling to find beauty somewhere. What type of fee structure, and you don't need to get specific, but what type of fee structure does an architect work with typically when you're working on these projects? Is it percentage? Is it hourly? Flat fee? Yeah, we love to be hourly. It never happens. <laughs> <laughs> but hourly is a, is something we look for. We, we, we have, it, so it's it's low, but we do percentage of construction and, okay. and then of cost of construction, and then we toggle it up or down given the complexity of the situation. So if they're, so, and a lot of these HUD is involved too. And so if HUD's involved, that, that changes everything. And I'll give a quick, quick breakdown of, of how HUD can be involved. So HUD, in the end, guarantees the loan that that the developer will get for the project. So the tax credit, the TCAC, which is in California, um, there are other tax credits in other states. They offer some equity, right, through through a tax credit that's sold on, a, on an open market. But the the loan is guaranteed by HUD, which allows the bank to basically give a super low interest rate that allows this whole thing to happen, right? So you get a super low interest rate to buy and, re and renovate these projects with the tax credit money and suddenly you have a, a, the ability to, to do these projects. But HUD comes with a with an extreme amount of red tape. I mean, it's just, it's, there's thousands of forms to fill out and you gotta, you gotta jump through hoops all through the whole process. Um, but, that's, but that's super important that, that, that we're able to do that, you know, that, 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 that that's there for us to use. I forgot the question you asked actually. It was about fees. It was about how you get, how okay. you so, so if HUD's involved, then we, then we have to, we have to increase the cost because our oversight and our responsibilities and the scope of our services are up. We, we have to deal, we have to manage all the change orders. We have to manage, uh, excuse me, site inspections. There's a lot of other issues that come with HUD. So we do it. We do a set percentage and then again, up or down depending on the complexity. 
what, what would you say is the most challenging part of working with affordable projects? In terms of rehabs, again, the, the, the new construction, the most challenging thing is to get, to get through all the entitlements. Um, so that, that is the most challenging part. And, and then making the projects work with, with, the, with the finances throughout the course of all that. There, in new construction, there's usually a lot more ability to, 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 to put design into the project even though sometimes it's super, super slim. In affordable, in rehabs, the hardest part is just dealing with the existing building, you know, and, and it's dealing with, with people that don't have trust in the process. <clears throat> so mainly what we look for in our developer is the ability to trust us that we're going to solve the problems when they come up. Because in these, uh, these rehabs or even in new construction, there's a lot of problems that happen during the course of the, of the, of the project. So, if you have trust in people that they get done and you don't freak out and, and lose yourself, you know, and just stress out completely about issues that come up and you allow for the process to happen and the solutions to come, then that makes life on everybody easier, you know? Yeah. Do you have advice for a listener who's out there we're listening to us right now who, who uh, has not yet started in affordable housing design, but wants to, I, I hear architects all the time who want to get in, to that that type of work but they don't really know the first step would you have any advice for them yeah i mean it, it's all about the developer so it it you there's a limited number of people that do this there's a limited amount of finances out there but while it, there, it's a number and it's more than zero there even in, in large um places like los angeles there's not large markets like los angeles there's still not a lot of people that do it so for rehabilitations there's probably six or seven for new construction there's probably 25 30 you just have to go talk to them. You know, you have to, you have to go in and bring your portfolio and sit down and make a meeting and, and just starting to shop yourself around and find out if you match them and they match you and you guys can make it, make it sort of beautiful things together. It's, it's really, you know, it, it's like everything else when finding work, you, you have to be able to be trusted with, with what they believe they, they want to make. So you have to come across with in a, in a way that allows them to, to trust that you could spend $10 million of their money to, to, to make something beautiful. So what's the future look like for relativity architects? Um, so the, the rehab, the rehab stuff has slowed down a little bit and new construction is, is really taking over that the idea is really to, to make new beds. So it, so we are in the middle of three or four of those right now. And they're, they're lots of fun. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun to do that. It's a lot easier than the rehabs. So probably the rehabs are going to slide down. And, and then as time goes on, they'll, they'll probably go back up. We are doing now a lot of the movie studios. So that's probably taking up 40% of, of our office that we're doing them all over the United States. It's a, it's a huge uh, market right now because of all the streamers that need to have places to make content. Yeah. And so that that's a lot of fun. And we're doing them in Canada and New York and um and Croatia and all over the place. So that's yeah. that's a lot of fun doing that. That's a whole new market, right? Internet studios. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean we think it has a we think it has a short, sort of a short lifespan. I mean, I think we're gonna get saturated at a certain point. So I mean, while that's gonna be that's fun and it's gonna be hot to go for a while, but you know, it's it's gonna dry up. And so we're we're keeping our we're keeping our fire of affordable housing going. Yeah. When you when you do your your marketing and business <laughs> development for the firm, are you are you doing two totally different uh, marketing campaigns to sort of get out there and get known for those two different types of work, or is it just one you know brand and we just happen to do these two things? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we we try to keep other options open too. So I think we brand, we market ourselves and we kind of allow the rest to kind of happen. I mean, we we do this work and we believe in it. And like, I'm passionate about affordable housing and passionate about studios. So I mean, I I, I think it's not something we don't, we don't want to really just focus on individual things. Like I'd love for people to, you know, we're, we're doing some, some hotels right now. We're doing some uh, single family homes. Like all those things are fun. I mean, really variety is the spice of life. So I, I think we just mark, market ourselves as architects. Yeah. Yeah. What's one thing a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I mean, I, I think at the, the end of the day, it's, it's learning how to deal with clients. I mean, I think really having, an idea of your approach to what you want out of your conversations and what they want, and to be able to listen to what they want out of out of conversations. I mean, it, it's really since it's really hard. We we don't make a widget that you can make five thousand five million of them and sell them everywhere. Your your best calling card is is a happy client, and so my approach from the very beginning is is sort of a it's it's just about being incredibly truthful and upfront with everybody that I that I work with, and because there's so many problems and. And, re- and really try to come to a, with a solution to the problems. So when you have your client, that client is the one that's going to get you all the, the future work. So so work with that client to make sure that they're, that they're satisfied with what you do. His name is Scott Sullivan. The firm is Relativity Architects. Where'd the name come from? Uh, science and math and art together. Yeah. The <laughs> it's website- a long story. We'll have to do another one on that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a cool name. And I love the website domain even more, studioofrelativity.com, studioofrelativity.com. You can go check out everything they're doing over there uh, at Relativity Architects. Scott, thank you very much for coming by the podcast here and sharing your knowledge at Huntray Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how Entree Architect Podcast will grow to serve thousands more architects just like you. Thanks to our sponsors, FreshBooks and RCAT for their support of this episode. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. Ready to edit business resources, live monthly business training for architects, a supportive architect community, and Simple Systems, our business system program developed for you the small firm architect. It's all waiting for you at Entree Architect Academy membership, including AIA continuing education learning units. Come join me and hundreds of your entrepreneur architect friends at entrearchitect.com slash join. Enroll today at entrearchitect.com slash join. Thanks for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know.